Father God, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for uh, everyone who's able to be here tonight. Uh, God, I appreciate that the weather is starting to warm up again. Uh, please bring some sunshine to this cold, dreary region of the United States. Um, and God, grant us wisdom tonight as we open up your book and just dig in to find out what you have in store for us in these scriptures. God, thank you for this book of Joshua and help us to have a better understanding of it tonight. And um, through our understanding of this book, a better understanding of you and a greater love and depth of knowledge of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in Joshua. Now, I love every book of the Bible, but there's a few that are real standouts for me. Joshua is one of them. Joshua is like the book of the Bible that I wish they would actually make a movie out of. I have seen enough Exodus movies, but Joshua is like a real military conquest, like action movie that I would watch. I, I wish someone would take hold of that. So if Dallas Jenkins ever gets a hold of this podcast, please make this movie or make a show out of it because this is an action-packed sequence of events. But Joshua is, is, is great. So it's the, the successor of, of Moses. Joshua acts as sort of um, a connection point. It's the first book in what we call the books of history in the Bible. So after the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the law, the ones written by Moses, we get the books of, of history that cover Israel's time in the, in the promised land. But this book is sort of a bridge or a connection point between the Torah and the next seven books that we'll get into because this is about their conquest and them taking the land and it ends with them settling it and figuring out how to utilize uh, the land that God has promised them. So there we are, that's the book of Joshua. Um, it is the conquest and settling of the promised land. It was written around 1390 BC. Most think it was written by Joshua. Um, it's finally time for God's people to stop wandering and stop being this nomadic tribe in the wilderness and be a settled nation with a piece of property that they defend. Um, and there are several pictures of Christ in the book of Joshua. We're going to try to cover all of them tonight. One is Joshua himself, even just the setup of, this, of the Bible in general, is the first, the first five books are the law, and they end outside of the promised land. The law doesn't get them where they need to go. But Joshua, who is the successor of Moses, shares a name with Jesus, Yeshua. And he is the one who enables the chosen people to enter the promised land. And so I'm sure you can see the picture of Christ in that itself. And even the fact that the name of the book is Yeshua, and that is, the, that is what happens in this story, even the books of the Bible in, in the way that they're organized almost seems like it's pointing to Jesus. Next, you'll see um, there's a moment that zooms in and we meet someone who is the commander of the army of the Lord, and we'll talk about him when we get there. Um, but that is another, not just a picture of Christ, but likely very much Christ showing up in this book. And then lastly, we've talked about it the last couple of weeks, um, that it is a picture of Christ. We're actually going to dig into it tonight, the cities of refuge and what they mean and what they are, because they get put into practice in the book of Joshua. There's really three major sections in this book. Chapters one through five are about them entering 
the land and preparing for conquest. The second section is really the conquest. It's conquering the land. It's chapters 6 through 12. And then chapters 13 through 24 are really settling and uh, settling the land and dividing the land among the tribes. Couldn't read my own handwriting, so should have been a doctor. So let's take a look at the beginning of the book. They have, Moses is gone, Joshua is the successor, and it picks up with that sentiment right in chapter one. Uh, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses, from the wilderness uh, and this Lebanon, as far as the great river Euphrates and all this land of the Hittites and to the great sea toward uh, toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage to this people. You shall divide an inheritance of the land, which I swore to the fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe uh, to do according to the law, which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. So Joshua's getting this commission from God. You are going to be the one who takes the promised land. Moses is gone. You are the successor. You are going to cross over the Jordan and take the promised land. That's what's going to happen. And then he gives them this command towards the end of what I read, not to turn from the right hand or to the left. Keep your eyes straight. Don't get caught off guard. Keep your eyes face forward on the goal ahead. And that will come up as we talk through the rest of the book. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your own way prosperous and then you will have success. So after saying, don't turn from the right or to the left, what God is saying, keep your eyes on is the word of God. The books that Moses wrote, Hold on to them dearly and do not depart from them and meditate on it day and night. And so this is the commission. They need to cross the Jordan. So the Jordan River, and this is interesting part of what happens here. um, It says that the the river is at flood season. So normally the Jordan River is about 100 feet wide. Now the Jordan River is about a mile wide because it's at flood season. And God gives them directions. He says, this is how you're going to cross the Jordan. You're going to have the priests carry the ark into the river. And when, you, when they put their feet in the river, the water will stop flowing. And you'll be able to cross on dry ground. Now, the interesting part of this is this is sort of different, right? Because when Moses did it, Moses lifted his staff in the air and the water separated and then they walked through. So this is a new generation and they're actually going to move into the promised land and God is calling them to a deeper faith. You have to step into the water first before I do the miracle. Show me that you trust my word. 
And so they do it, the water separates, and they cross through. Now, the water, water separates four times in the Old Testament. We have Moses at the Red Sea when the water parts, this moment with Joshua, and then when we get into the, king, the books of the kings, you'll see Elijah part the waters, and then his mentee, Elisha. So, interestingly, Moses and his successor part the waters. Elijah and his successor part the waters. And I think that that's just one more evidence of the two witnesses of Revelation being Moses and Elijah, because the, part, the major parting of the waters started with Moses and Elijah, and the one who, the, their successors who finished their role were also able to do the same thing so that the people were aware that God was with Moses and Elijah, or with Joshua and Elisha, the same way that God was with Moses and Elijah. So chapter two, we see something really interesting. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. So they, they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. And so just speaking of the two witnesses and how I think Elijah and Moses are likely the two, Joshua sends in two spies to go into Jericho as they're entering the promised land before their first conquest. And they meet up with someone named Rahab. So Joshua, interestingly, was a part of the original spy, spy group. So Joshua and Caleb are the only two remaining members of the previous generation because they were the only two who wanted to take the promised land. And I, there's, there's a couple of lessons from this. One, we'll get to later. So don't let me forget, but just remember the words, the book of Revelation. Number two is this. Joshua learned his lesson. Moses sent in 12 people, and he sent in a huge committee, and he got a whole bunch of naysayers. Joshua learned from that, and he sends in two people. <laughs> and he says, all you need is two people. That's it. So he sends in two people, and they meet up with someone named Rahab. Now, Rahab is sort of a sordid character. She's a prostitute, but she takes in the two spies um, because everyone is afraid. It turns out that the city of Jericho had heard about all of the stuff God had done. And we'll read about that in a second, but they're afraid. So Rahab takes them in and protects them and then asks for her own protection. And this is a really important moment because Rahab shows up in the lineage of Christ. So their failure to enter the promised land the first time leads to them entering from the east, crossing the Jordan, starting with Jericho, and meeting Rahab, who ends up in the lineage of Christ. And her story is pretty interesting. Let's pick up in, in verse 8. This is uh, the, still the continued story of Rahab and the spies. Now, therefore, lay down. She came up to them on the roof. So she went up to the spies on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. For when you came out of Egypt, what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, 
whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither, neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you, for the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now, therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you will also show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token. Spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. So a couple things. One, the first generation of the Exodus didn't go through with the conquest of the promised land because when they spied out the promised land, they were afraid of the people in the promised land and they thought that they looked like ants to the people who lived in the promised land. They were wrong. They put their own fears and their own circumstances in front of how big God is. Now these two spies are hearing directly from the horse's mouth they're hearing directly from a member of the community that they're about to conquer, that that's not true. That the people are afraid of the Israelites because they've heard what God has done for them. And so everyone's afraid of them. And so they were living with this lie for years that they were afraid of the people that they were going to conquer. It turns out God put, put his fear in the people that they were going to conquer already. And so to make sure when God makes a promise, he keeps his word. Rahab's story continues. And the, the men say to her in, in verse 17, so the men said to her, we will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear. Unless when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, your mother, and your brothers and all your father's household to your own home, so it shall be whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and he will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be in our head if a hand is laid on him. So this is the deal. The deal that Rahab made with the spies is there, she's going to let them out through the outer wall using a scarlet thread or a scarlet cord that they're gonna, like a rope, they're gonna climb down to get out of the city to go back to Joshua and his people. The spies are saying to her, you hang this cord out the window when we come back and your house will be spared and anyone who's in it. But if any member of your family leaves your house, that's their own fault. And God will do with them as he pleases and we will destroy anyone outside of your house because this is the agreement we're making. What is inside of your walls will stay safe. So if anybody walks outside those walls and we come by to conquer, that's their fault, not ours. But it's interesting that the sign of the covenant is a scarlet cord, a red cord. Um, you know, there are a lot of commentators and there's even a, a book that I started reading um, called Bloodline by Pastor Skip Heitzig, where he calls it the scarlet thread of redemption this idea of blood and red that runs through the scriptures that talks about sacrifice. And he points out this as one of those examples, this scarlet cord and what its symbolism means in that she put her faith in that, in the red cord. And that saved her even to the point where she ends up in Jesus's family. 
So it's interesting. Picking up now in uh, chapter three, they actually cross the Jordan, um, but they're still not ready to take over Jericho. So in verse 12, it says this, now therefore take yourselves 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one man from every tribe, and it shall come to pass as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off. The waters that come down from upstream, they shall stand as a heap. So as soon as the feet of the priests touch the water, the water will stop running. Now there have been a number of attempts to try to explain this phenomenon naturally. There are two events in history that an earthquake happened and stopped the flow of the Jordan River. Um, but that never happened during flood season. Um, take it or leave it as you will, a natural explanation. An earthquake is still something God can do to do something miraculous, especially since the timing happened with the footsteps of the priests hitting the water. Um, that would shake my faith up a little bit if an earthquake happened the second I put my foot in the water and the water stopped running. Um, or if God just did something crazy miraculous and all of a sudden there was a wall of water next to you. I tend to think that that's probably more likely since it was during flood season no mile wide, but it's, uh, it's something to note and talk about. Verse 14, so it was when the people set out from their camp to cross over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And as those who bore the Ark came to the Jordan and the feet of the priests who bore the Ark dipped into the edge of the water for the Jordan overflows at its banks during this whole time of the harvest, that the waters which came down from upstream stood still and rose in a heap very far away. At Adam, the city that is beside Zaratan, so the waters that went down into the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, failed and were cut off and the people crossed over opposite Jericho. So they've crossed and now... Joshua is going to set up a memorial. He sets up 12 stones, and uh, it's like a remembrance. These 12 stones that he sets up, it's an altar to remember what God had done, getting them across the Jordan on dry land. Now, the reason that that's worth mentioning is because of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, you see, in John chapter 1, verse 28, you hear a little bit about John the Baptist and where he was baptizing. It says, these things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Bethabara means the place of the crossing. So where John the Baptist was baptizing is where Joshua led the Israelites across the Jordan River. So just a little piece of history and another connection point to get you to see the picture that's being painted. Verse 19 of chapter 4 says, Now the people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they captained Gilgal at the east border of Jericho, and those twelve stones which they took out of Jordan, Joshua set up in Gilgal. So he sets it up. But they're still not ready to enter the promised land. Something is not right. And that's what chapter 5 gives us, the last thing for them to prepare. They have shown their faith. They have dipped their toes in the water. The water stopped. They crossed the river and they set up a memorial to that, remembering what God did for them. But there's still something amiss in, the, in this generation's life. So picking up in verse 2 of chapter 5. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives for yourselves and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. So 
the whole generation that exited Egypt was circumcised. And circumcision was meant to be the sign of the covenant that these are the chosen people. But everyone who was born after the Exodus, they forgot to do it. Now, this was, God, this was the sign that they're God's people, and they chose not to do it. So Joshua now has to circumcise this group of people. Verse 4, and this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. They chose while they were wandering not to follow through on the promises that God had given them. Meanwhile, they're still eating the manna that God is providing for them every day. The interesting thing about this practice is it's literally cutting away at the flesh. It's literally removing flesh, which is a sign of something deeper. Paul talks about a circumcision of the heart because it's really talking about resisting the will of the flesh to be set apart for God. To be set apart for God is to remove flesh. This was literal in the Old Testament as a symbol for what it means in the New Testament, to remove the flesh desire and to focus on the eternal. And they had to do that before they could enter the promised land, before they could fulfill God's promises for them. The flesh had to be cut away. So verse 10, now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover. On the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho, they ate the produce of the land. So after they practiced, they got themselves right. They cut away the flesh. Now they go back to the original practice. The thing that Moses told them to remember to always do, they go and they celebrate the Passover on the other side of the Jordan. They're in the promised land on the other side of the Jordan and they celebrate the Passover. Verse 11, and they ate the produce of the land. On the day after Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day, then the manna ceased on the day they had eaten the produce of the land, and the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. So God's provision, God's supernatural provision, gets removed when his promise is fulfilled. So he sustained them all the way to achieving the promise he gave them. And once they got the promise, that supernatural sustaining was gone because now they're in the land and they're able to eat of the fat and the produce of the land because God fulfilled his promise. Meaning, God will take care of you along the way, but you will, when he gets you to where he needs you, you've got work to do. And right after that, we meet a very interesting character because they're about to... They've cut away the flesh. They've celebrated the Passover. The, lamb, the sacrifice of the lamb has been made. Passover lamb. And now they're ready to enter the promised land. And so we meet an interesting character. Verse 13, it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted his eyes and looked and behold, a man opposite him 
with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Now, this is an interesting just moment for me. It's really surprising. Joshua's question is very human. Are you for us or against us? Which is, I think, sometimes how we think. And the commander of the army of the Lord responds and says, no, (laughs) I'm not. The real question is, are you for me or against me? It's about our worship to God, not what we can get from him. And so what does Joshua do? He falls on his face in worship and asks, what does God have to say to me? And the commander of the Lord's army says to Joshua, take your sandals off your foot for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Now this moment is mind blowing because what does this commander say? Because now we know who he is. He's given us the clue. Take off your shoes where you stand is holy ground. Does that sound familiar? It should, because it's the burning bush. It's the same exact words we hear when Moses is standing before the burning bush. And the burning bush is whom? The angel of the Lord, which is very much likely Jesus showing up physically in the Old Testament, the appearance of a man, but is treated as God. And now you get a bit of, a, of an insight. That this guy is going to tell you, Jesus is going to tell you, the battle plan. Now Jericho was securely shut up uh, because of the children of Israel. So they were already a secure city, but now everybody's afraid. So they're like, they're really locking down the fort because they're afraid. It says none went out and none came in. So they're not letting anybody go inside or out of the city because they're scared. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. That's an interesting statement because Joshua's looking at a heavily fortified city that's acting even more fortified than it normally does. And God says to Joshua, see, I've given given it to you. It's in in your hands. Easy. Right. Uh, Here's how you're going to do it. Verse three, you will march around the city all of your men of war, you shall go around the city once. This you will do for six days. All right, so you want us to walk around the city for six days. What's next? Then seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. If you haven't highlighted that or circled that, do it, because we're coming back to that later. That's a big, important book of Revelation. Think about it. Um, Seven trumpets of ram's words, but the seventh day you will march around the city seven times. So lots of sevens. And the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn. And when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout and the wall of the city will fall down flat and the people shall go up every man straight before him. So, They're going to walk around the city once a day for six days. And then on the seventh day, they're going to walk around the city seven times. And then 
seven priests who are carrying seven ram's horns are going to blow the ram's horns and the people are going to shout at the end of the seven days and the walls are just going to come tumbling down. So, you know, this is General MacArthur type battle plan. This is amazing stuff. Uh, I'm sure Joshua felt real good about this, but this is a moment that is worth noting because God has chosen to take an extremely fortified city and given them a battle plan that shows them the only reason that they're going to succeed is because God is with them. That's important. There's another piece to the puzzle in verse 10. Joshua had commanded to the people saying, you shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until I say to you, shout, then you shall shout. So they're supposed to be silent the whole time until that seventh day on the seventh time when the the trumpets blow. There's one other interesting piece to this, which is um, they're talking about doing something for seven days in a row. That's a little bit contradictory to something we learned about in the law. What about the Sabbath? Where's their rest? And this just goes to show you that Jesus is really right when he says God made uh, Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath. Sometimes you will have to set this aside. So when when Jesus' disciples were picking grain on the Sabbath and uh, the experts in the law were making fun of them and trying to poke holes in Jesus' ministry and saying, why are you letting them do work on the Sabbath? And Jesus says, no, God made the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath. So even here, God is commanding them in this circumstance to ignore the Sabbath to fulfill a goal. And so sometimes have to recognize that it's not about making sure you fulfill every single precept and every single rule and regulation. It's really about the heart of the matter. And right now, God is giving you a command and you need to fulfill it. Um, And the silence is also something to note and remember. And so they got their battle plan, they got their orders, and they did it, and it worked. And no surprise, everyone who was in Rahab's house survived. And just to note, interestingly, archaeology has unearthed Jericho. All of the wall is destroyed except for one small section, which you would expect, just like the Bible story states. Um, And so, again, history has confirmed that the Bible is accurate. Now, the next chapter, after they destroy Jericho, you see the only failure in the book of Joshua Chapter 7 is interesting because it's the only time that they fail. They just defeated this huge city, this huge fortified stronghold city, and the next place they go is the city of Ai. And the city of Ai is significantly smaller, and they're a little cocky. And they only send 3,000 men, um, which right in verse 4, so about 3,000 men went up from the people. But they fled before the men of Ai, and the men of Ai struck down about 36 men. So they sent a small group, and they lost 36 people, the Israelites did. Uh, For they chased them from before the gate as far as Shebarim, and struck them down on the descent. There before the hearts of the people melted and became like water. So this arrogant people who was very confident and just saw God do something amazing, what did they do? They took credit for what God did, got cocky. And then they got defeated. But why did they get defeated? 
you find out in verse 11, Israel has sinned and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them for they have even taken some of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived. And they have also put it among their own stuff. Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turn their backs before their enemies because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the, um, the accursed from among you. And so you find out this guy named Achan stole stuff from Jericho. Um, they were commanded strictly not to do that to destroy everything in its path. And even in the archeological find, there are jars of grain that are completely burnt, which is something as a conqueror in this day and age, you would take all the food you could, but they clearly did what God commanded them. They burned even the grain, which is something that was very valuable to a, a, a conquering group of nomads. But this one guy, Achan, really screwed up. So what happened? Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. And this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, there's that Babylon, that city that always represents sin. I saw this Babylonian garment, uh, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold and weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them and took them. And there they are hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver went under it. What did Jesus say? You can't serve both God and money. Money's not bad, but you can't serve it and God. You can, only, you can only have one master. You can't have two masters. So Joshua's response to this in verse 25, we have, uh, Joshua said, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones and they burned them with fire and they had stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones, still there to this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that valley has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. So this is a sobering moment. What God says, he means. He had already told Joshua that he needs to meditate on the law, on the books of Moses every day, on the words of God that have been written down, need to be taken into deep consideration and meditated on every day. God gave a command. One guy didn't follow it and he got destroyed for it. What God says, he means. And so, you know, just as a, as a note, th this is sort of my whole deal. I care deeply about what the scriptures say. I believe the authority for my life is God's word. And when I disagree with it, I recognize I am the subject and not the authority. And as much as I want to disagree with some things, I have to recognize that God is in control, not me. And it's not my job to tell God what he got wrong. It's more God's job to let me know that I got it wrong. Um, and Achan is an example of that. Now, after this, they conquer the city of Ai with ease because they're right with God and people are following and they got rid of, you know, the bad apple. So what happens next? In verse 30, Joshua builds an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel in Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the children of Israel. As it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man has wielded an iron tool. 
And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. So they, they offer a sacrifice to God in thanks for what he has done for them after they conquer the city. And Joshua is now copying all of the books of the law. So that's a hefty task. He's writing them all out with not a pen. So he's writing them on stones. And uh, then all Israel with their elders and officers and judges stood on either side of the ark before the priests, the Levites who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger, as well as he who was born among them. Half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them on the front of Mount Ebal as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before, that they should bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all of, so after he wrote them, um, he read all of the words of the law, the blessings and cursings, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before the assembly of Israel with the women, the little ones, and the strangers who were living among them. So once they got themselves back into a good understanding and into a good relationship with God. They conquer the city of Ai. And Joshua offers uh, offerings to God. He, he offers sacrifices to God out of thanks for what God has done for them. Then he writes, he copies the books of the law and reads them aloud to the whole of the Israelites, everyone who's there, men, women, children, everybody. I think that is a great example of leadership. Joshua is not taking the credit. Joshua is giving the credit to God, and he's making sure a mistake is not repeated. We did not listen to God's word when we went into the city of Ai. We will not make that mistake next time. And Joshua had no more failures after that. So I think that speaks for itself. Now, here's where things get really interesting because this is basically what goes on now. They, they entered the promised land from the east, crossing over the Jordan. And they entered with Jericho and I sort of in the middle as a, as a border. And so they've cut the promised land in half into north and south. And so the rest of their conquest is they conquer the south first and then head up to the north. Um, and as they're conquering the South, the Northern Kings sort of create a coalition against them. And that's basically what the rest of the conquest looks like. Um, but we're going to dig into a few spots just to see what's going on. Verse 14 um, of chapter 9 says this, Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. So what is that verse all about? What is he saying? This is the opposite of what Joshua did. Their failure in I had to do with the fact that they didn't ask counsel of God. The other part of this is that they make a treaty in chapter 9 with a group of people who pretend to be weary travelers and vagabonds. Um, they put on shabby clothing and they pretend to be weak. Um, and they succumb to the, the Israelites and they say, oh, please, um, don't fight against us. We're just weary travelers and, uh, you know, save us. And Joshua doesn't ask God about this. They just make a treaty with these people. Um, and so they allow foreigners to live in their land, which is something that God told Moses not to do. 
Um, and so the real thing here is when you're, when you're following God's plan, when you're putting yourself in action and you're looking to do what God has promised you, pray. Continually make sure that you're doing the right thing. Because when you, when you just assume that you're doing the right thing and you make decisions based on your feelings rather than what God has said, uh, you can make bad decisions. So pray. They didn't. Um, they became, the Gibeonites are the people that he made a treaty with, they became woodcutters and water carriers for the temple. That's what they ended up doing. And then chapter 10 has this weird, interesting moment where um, they are fighting a, a king named Adonai Zedek, uh, king of Jerusalem. And uh, as they're fighting these people, Joshua is winning, but he needs some extra time. And so he asks God for time. And then it says the sun stands still for about a whole day. Um, verse uh, 11 says, it happened as they fled before Israel, the enemies, uh, and were on the descent of Beth Horon, that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Ezekiah, and they died, and they were more, there were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. So as they're in this war, um, God concludes this with large hailstones from heaven and kills people for Israel, and more people were killed by the hailstones than actually Israelite soldiers. So that's another verse that I would highlight for, highlight for later. Now this whole sun stood still thing, you get the picture of it in uh, verses 13 uh, and, and on. It says, so the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the people had their revenge upon their enemies. Uh, is this not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and who did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. Uh, and there has been no day like that before it or after it that the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Um, so this is a really interesting moment. I don't really have time to dig into all of it because we're almost out of time and we're not going to make it through the book of Joshua tonight because <laughs> uh, that's just the way it is. But the sun stood still. Now there's some, I've heard all sorts of crazy fancy things about this. Um, I remember when I was in youth group, I had a youth pastor who talked about, uh, there was some famous astronomer who calculated the days of the earth and found out that there was a missing day using something about the revolutions around the earth. That's all hokum and nonsense. It's not really true. It's just something that some, you know, fake news uh, Christian site put out there to uh, get bolster the, uh, the Bible as if it needs your fake defense. Uh, now, I don't really know the answer to this. There are some interesting theories. Uh, I would recommend for anybody who uh, wants to know more about this, Pastor or Dr. Chuck Missler does a great thing on this in his uh, 20, The Bible in 24 Hours. He talks about some of the uh, models that have been done about the orbits of Mars and Earth and how there's, at a specific time, there could have been a weird effect when they came really close to each other um, and the Earth could have lost some energy. Um, and this might be evidenced in the fact that a lot of the ancient calendars suddenly change from 360 days to 365 days? Um, and why does this happen? And also, why were the ancient cultures so afraid of Mars? So did Mars have something to do with this? Um, I don't understand it all. I would say that's your resource. 
because I'm not going to try to talk about something I don't fully understand. But there you go. If you want an answer, there it is. I don't have it. Because um, it's, it's, beyond, it's beyond my ability to take time to learn it. Um, verse 16, but these five kings had fled and hidden themselves in the cave at Makeda. And uh, it was told, Joshua saying, the five kings had been found in the cave at Makeda. So Joshua said, roll the large stones against the mouth of the cave and uh, set men by it to guard them. And they do not stay there yourselves, but pursue your enemies and attack the rear guard. Do not allow them to enter their cities for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. So there is this coalition of kings that wanted to fight against Israel during their conquest. At this point, hailstones have fallen and started to kill people. Um, hailstones killed more than the Israelites. Now the sun has stood still for a day. Things are looking weird. People are scared. And what happens? These kings that went against them go hide in caves. That's important. Again, Revelation. You'll see a parallel to that in the book of Revelation, um, which I guess we'll talk more about next week because this is as far as we're going to get. Um, I was hoping to do the whole book, but I failed. That's okay because Joshua is one of my favorites, so I just get to spend more time in it. But let's sort of recap where we've come. We've pretty much covered the first two sections. They had to enter the promised land. They had to cross the Jordan. They had to show faith to do it. But before they could fulfill God's promise, they had to remove the flesh. And then they were able to do what God had commanded them to do. And then when they failed, they removed the obstacle of their failure, Achan. And they learned how important it is to take God's word seriously, which God commanded Joshua to do from the very beginning. And now they've had conquest and they've been victorious when they listen to God and they remove the fleshly desires. I think there's a principle in that for all of us. When we listen to God, take his word seriously and remove the passions of the flesh and realize that God is our authority, not our desires. And because of that, the next section will be them settling and dividing the land. And they got to this point because of Joshua. Not Moses, not the law, Yeshua. Our ability to get into heaven, our ability to see the grace of God does not come from our ability to follow the law. As much as we should take God's word seriously, we still have to recognize our need for grace, our need for Yeshua. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this book. Thank you for your word. Help us to understand it and take it seriously. Help us to remove the flesh of our hearts, to live with circumcised hearts, as Paul states, and to give ourselves up as a sacrifice, as a living sacrifice for you and live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.